Interlibrary Loan The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan. In today's episode we are going to be discussing the first three episodes of The Handmaid's Tale, the TV series that has just aired on Hulu. And if you've been with us, then you know that we finished not too long ago uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. So it's pretty fresh in our mind, and we're going to discuss what we've seen of the show so far. So as always, I'm Katie. I'm Sky, And I'm Lauren. And let's jump right in. So um, unlike a lot of online streaming television that gets made these days where an entire uh, series gets dropped at the same time, they uh, Hulu has released the first three episodes and then are releasing uh, one episode each week, you know, every week after that. So we just watched the first three episodes that uh, were released on April 26th. Uh, and lucky for us, they cover a lot of the events of the novel. They do. Um, and so much so that uh, like I, I had kind of forgotten that release structure. And since I think I'm so used to now, um, like Netflix and Hulu originals being dropped all at once, as you said, uh, I had forgotten that they were going to release just the first three episodes and then like one episode a week. So I was like, this is a really weird part to end the season <laughs> <laughs> when I was watching it. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, uh, it's not finished yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at the time we're recording this, I think the fourth episode has also been released. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you've watched that yet, Katie. We have not. No, I haven't. But, you know, ten. so it's a 10 episode. Each episode um, is like between 45 and 55 minutes. And uh, that's like a long time. That's like a really, uh, you know, for a 300 or so page novel, that's a lot of TV space yeah, to cover. Time. So, mm-hmm. uh They've done it where I like it'll be really interesting to see how, what the rest of the season arc is because most of the events of the novel take place in these first three episodes. That's right, and so I I'll be interested to see um, what what things are kind of added and played up a bit because um, I it, it seems to me at least that there is certainly opportunity that they're taking for expanding on some other stories that we don't necessarily see in the book right and they've kind of shifted the timeline around so we're not we're not following the same um exact plot arc that margaret atwood lays out in the novel instead it kind of feels like they've chosen to pick out plot points to immerse the viewer in this viewing experience to make you understand what living in Gilead is. Um, So, you know, we have like, it kind of felt like the first episode could have been just like a, a TV preview of the novel in some ways, because you have like the, the like, the major plot points of the entire novel, even within the first episode. Yeah, I, so I was wondering, like, in my head, the TV, the, the Lars the Swede-directed uh, version of The Handmaid's Tale <laughs> would be, like, super contemplative and just, like, really slow and have long periods of suspenseful waiting and long periods of, you know, inner monologue. This is what the novel is like. A lot of the novel is a Fred talking to herself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's... for. Pretty good. Re- I mean, I think it would be awesome to have a sort of like really spare, slow 
television adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale, but I'm not surprised that they didn't actually do that. It's very, it's a lot more fast-paced than the novel is. Right, and we were talking earlier that, like, if they chose to do that, they wouldn't be able to to kind of do the mass marketing and appeal to a a wide audience the way they have. Um, That would make it more of kind of, like, in the genre of art film and, you know, kind of this quiet contemplative philosophical work that that's obviously not the audience that they're trying to attract they're trying to get people who also watch game of thrones like obviously those are obviously these are two very different shows but like the the pacing of the series and the way that they handle action is a you know is in keeping with uh you know like prestige television in you know of of the present era it's much yeah it's it's much more accessible to the kind of um, average television audience, right? Yeah. Well, and but that being said, I still feel like they have done a very good job of maintaining the atmospheric tone of The Handmaid's Tale. As so far as like y- we talked about how when we were reading The Handmaid's Tale, it wasn't really a pleasant place to be, and you could feel like this this space that was oppressive. And I feel like that translated very well to the screen, and it's like it's terrifying. And they've they have preserved the the like kind of horrific aspect of being in Gilead. Oh yeah, and unlike a lot of you know like game i was you know using game of thrones as a a contrast um like you know the sex and violence that we see in the handmaid's tale is disturbing and it is shown to be disturbing consistently which is i mean that's a pretty low bar to clear but they did clear that bar like at no point was i like oh this is like weird and voyeuristic or like this makes me uncomfortable it's not gratuitous and it's not like there's very little of like the gaze, right? Like it's not um, exploitative in the way that a lot of like television can be. Right, I would agree with that. Um, which is, I mean, like that would have been really terrible. Like that again, it's like a low bar to clear for an adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. I think like The Handmaid's Tale is is you know specifically m- meant to be disturbing and unsettling and like um, and to show you the kind of like sexual violence that uh that exists like both in the world of the handmaid's tale and like as a like a mirror to our own world um so yeah i don't know I f- so i feel like they they got that right that was good mm-hmm. i also think that um a fred's tone is pretty spot on um mm. A Fred narrates for us as she does in the book, but of course we're hearing it as like voiceover. And um, I just think her tone is absolutely spot on. Mm-hmm. She's a, a little sarcastic, um, educated, realistic. Um, I so I that was that was an aspect that I really appreciated. Katie, do we want to talk a little bit more about casting choices? I feel like Elizabeth Moss, like you said, really hits the nail on the head when it comes to, you know, doing O'Fred justice as far as, like, character embodiment. She is such a great protagonist in this television series. Oh, absolutely. She, I mean, she's fantastic in everything she does. But, but yeah, in particular, I think she she was a perfect choice for O'Fred. Um. So yeah, let's talk about some of some of the other casting. So we talked, we mentioned before uh, we had even watched the show, but of course, having seen um, previews, that both Serena Joy um, cast uh, 
they cast uh, Ivan Strahovski and the commander um, being Joseph Fiennes both of them are far too young and pretty oh uh, yeah. yeah for their characters <laughs> Uh, yeah. I, I have a lot of problems. I, I feel like I have a lot of problems with the choice for Serena Joy because it totally changes the dynamic between Serena Joy and of Glenn. And yeah. it changes her entire... Of Fred? Oh, sorry. Sorry, of, of Fred. I said yeah. of Glenn. Uh, of Fred. But it, it really... It changes who she is as a person. And it's not the same story. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because the rest of the wives do actually seem kind of appropriately cast uh they're kind of like middle-aged women and most of them look kind of frail Mm -hmm. i think that yeah serena joy was so first of all she's entirely too young and Mm -hmm. like pretty looking Mm -hmm. um like i mean i I mean um like healthy looking Mm mm-hmm uh, and, and, and she's got like makeup on. She's got like yeah. even in the world in the world of the Handmaid's Tale, even the wives aren't supposed to have makeup the way that like a movie star today would have makeup. You mm. know what I mean? Like she looks too put, put together. together. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Because because Fred notes in the book, like she had remembered seeing her on television because she was some singer, right? Before, um, she but was like she a Farrah does faucet type, you know? Yeah, like... yeah. But she doesn't look like that anymore. She's this kind of like pale, frail. Um, shell. Wait, was Farrah Fawcett like a, a like evangelical? No, singer? but she had that kind of like it was like that. It, I feel like Farrah Fawcett has the same look as a lot of like country singers with the big blonde hair and stuff. I don't oh, know. I guess yeah. Well, I mean, but she was also supposed to be like a member of this like sort of religious. Right oh uh, yeah, absolutely, group. absolutely. I'm thinking. I'm think. Part of me wants to think like Tammy Faye Baker. But. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, maybe they'll do something really interesting w- with um, Ivan Strahovski's performance as Serena Joy in later episodes to make it sort of, like, pay off that they've made her sort of, like, young and attractive. But the thing is, is that, like, Serena Joy in the novel, it's not just that she's like, hasn't born children. She's, like, too old to bear children, like, under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. She's, like, an yeah. older woman. Yeah. And so it's weird to have this, like... You know, it almost turns the relationship between a Fred and Serena Joy into more like rivals rather than like mistress and like servant. And that's weird to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as Ivan Strahovski's actual acting as Serena Joy, um, I mean, she she plays her as this like very austere and um, like cold seeming individual, which is correct. Um but and and then of course there are like moments where well like when she when she thinks that of Fred is pregnant and she like starts you know being nice to her being nice to her yeah um but it's just yeah it's just it's there's there's a lot off about it because there is this like strange competition aspect between the two of them that it seems now because she's she's just too young we also never see her gardening which i was i was a little disappointed yeah 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 with her with her cane out there in the yard <laughs> yep. yeah but yeah joseph finds is also kind of a weird choice for the commander um he's like i think he does a good enough job as far as he, he again he's like he's a good actor and he and he does okay with the power dynamics, but he just doesn't really look the part. You know, I I kind of feel like he's he's too pretty, right? He looks mm-hmm. like like someone who is that 
carefully curated and put together, I don't think he's going to be somebody like the commander. I mean, the commander needs to look like freaking Mitch McConnell. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to be a, a, the like a cover of of Esquire or whatever. You know? Right. He needs to be like a an old, out of shape dude who looks a little like withered or a little fat and like I mean pick one I don't know maybe both and like you know like someone who's imposing by the nature of their position and not like imposing by the nature of their appearance yeah because also remember a lot of the commanders are older and a lot of them remember there was talk of the uh, the word sterile yeah they're impotent yeah (laughs) he's also way too well dressed um, yeah. I mean, when we think of the powerful men who are mucking things up right now, um, they are Paul Ryan, who looks like a child in his father's suit, and <laughs> Donald Trump, who famously tapes the back of his ties and wears them too long. Like these, like people like the commander can't dress themselves, frankly, and in you know in throughout history, like you know, and and so it's weird that he looks like he's in an advertisement for a Rolex. Yeah. But I mean, they had to Hollywood it up somewhat, I guess. I don't know. I feel like those are two the two glaring sort of like concessions they made to like to Hollywood. To Hollywood. Right. And that that was uh my next question that I was going to ask is that those two clearly are the like sore thumbs sticking out, but mm-hmm. but I I felt that the rest of the casting was pretty great. What did what did you guys think? Oh my gosh. I I agree. I think yeah. pretty much everybody else is knocking out of the park. Um Ann Dowd as Aunt Lydia is inspired. So, she's so good. So oh. imposing. Such a wonderful villain. Yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. Um, uh uh Samira Wiley is perfect. I mean, I I, I those who have watched Orange is the New Black, which I guess who hasn't at this point, but um, know her from... I haven't. From... Sky has Oh, not. you haven't? Oh, okay. Well, I, don't, I don't watch a lot of television. I, I watched all of Orange is the New Black, and I agree, Samira, Samira Wiley is a great actress. Um, but I think we probably want to talk a little bit about how the like decision to cast black actors in the roles of Moira and uh, Luke kind of glosses over the white supremacist undertones of the handmaid's tale um yeah katie were you, did you were you like i know i was thinking about that a lot um watching this show um it was an interesting decision like we touched on this i think only briefly while reading the novel but like it's sort of unspoken but constantly there in the novel that like all the characters in the novel are white, except for, like, maybe the Marthas. Yeah, the Marthas. And, mm-hmm. and like, there is this sort of... Racist eugenicist kind of, like... Right, element yeah. to it. And it's the, I think what's so brilliant about it in the novel is that it's entirely unspoken. Like, this is never something that's discussed or talked about. A Fred almost never talks about it. But it's, like, pretty clear that, like, this society is not just not just treating like women as objects and and slaves but also is deeply white supremacist and is also like presumably committing atrocities against people of color yeah um and that isn't really there in the well, television series it seems like they chose to showcase the um 
fertility crisis and posit that this society is so panicked for like the continuance of the human race that they have decided to ignore the racist tradition and like undertones of American society in favor of just like having more babies. I, I, I understand the, 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 the decision to do that and I am all for, you know, inclusivity in representation in television, but I think in this case, it kind of like, it's whitewashing in a different way. It's like saying, it's pretending that oppression has never happened in some yeah, ways. Yeah, like in a certain sense, like the only way that I can imagine the world of the, the Handmaid's Tale television series is if racism was much less bad in the before times than it actually is, you know? Like, uh, you know, like a Fred's marriage to Luke and they're like, you know, their status as like a mixed race couple with like a mixed race child, like that is completely uncommented on in mm-hmm. uh, in the three episodes that we've watched. Well, I think another thing to consider that may in, uh, inform this is that um, this miniseries seems to be set in modern day. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I guess that's that's the playing the devil's advocate that can <laughs> uh, that could kind of maybe um, explain why. Uh, because we do see we do see a couple of hand of uh, handmaids of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, they did keep some of it right. Like all of the wives are white, so they did. Mm-hmm. You know, they all of the commanders are white. Um, so there is that. But uh, yeah, I think the 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 decision to set it in the present day rather than in the like eighties or nineties or some unspecified time actually works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, other casting choices. Um... Sucky Janine is great. <laughs> Sucky Janine is great, but is also a very different character than yeah. Sucky Janine in the novel. Mm-hmm. Like they really changed who that character is. And I don't dislike the the new direction they take it for Janine, but I do kind of this. The problem is in the television show, Janine is not Sucky the way that she is in the novel. Yeah, well, I kind of miss kind of Sucky like... Janine. Janine in the television show is kind of sad, you know? It's like she's been she's been totally defeated. Well, and I think that, that she's also an example of... I mean, we, we do have, like, the crazy woman uh, attempting to steal a Fred's baby in the before times, right? Oh, but, that was cool. That was but great. It, that yeah, but it actually happens, like, in the maternity ward instead mm-hmm. of when she's a, a, a toddler, which is even more terrifying, maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess not. I'm... Uh, both scenarios are equally horrible, but in in the book we had that highlight of um, um, mental and psychological uh, effects of this total barrenness that that is not only you know barrenness of uh, childbearing, but barrenness of like the world. Mm. Um, I think it's highlighted more in Janine's character. Um, they've kind of taken that and infused that to her. So, that was an interesting choice. In the desert there is no sign that says, Thou shalt not eat stones. Uh, Alexis Bladell as, uh, of Glenn. She's, like, serviceable. I like Alexis Bladell. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you guys think of the choice to make of Glenn a lesbian? She wasn't in the book? I can't remember that. I don't believe we that don't ever comes up. Yeah, yeah, we don't. We we come to know. I think it's That's interesting. Right. They're setting up of Glenn in the show to be like a second protagonist. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, which is common in tele in like you know contemporary television. Um, 
but like that's a total change. You know, of, of Glenn is like not a character we we know about other than her relationships with a Fred in the novel, but here she's like a secondary protagonist. That's right. And see, I, and I think, I think it was done in such a believable, uh, uh, fashion that it made me forget, um, (laughs) exactly how much we know about her character in the novel. But, um, but yeah, and I know I thought that was an interesting choice. And I, and I think it's clear that there's going to be like more, um, delving into of Glenn's story mm-hmm. in the rest of the of, of of the series and it's a story that we don't really get in the novel because all we know about her is um well we're we're told that she's dead. Uh wait, no, I thought we were told that she that she hung herself whenever the Oh, that's right. Yes. She, yeah, she yeah, hangs yeah. herself whenever the the van comes for her, but in in episode 3 of the of the mini series, you get her whole story of like what happens once she's taken in, which which is interesting. So the 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 miniseries has like has drifted away from having Elizabeth Elizabeth or sorry having a Fred be the omniscient narrator or mm-hmm. like or ha- or being the like or I guess not omniscient. She's kind of like subjective, right? You you don't know what's going outside on outside of her. Right. Head. This is li- I mean you so, know the frame story for this is these are literally like her audio journal that she put on the cassette tape so i mean you know from being a document that she writes to you know being this you know it's a television show right. it's got a it's got a um so but we see what happens to of glenn when a fred is not there exactly mm-hmm. exactly yeah which that i mean that whole series of scenes was horrifying yeah brutal yeah, they really don't uh, shy away from showing you the, you know, like the the violence, the violence that for the most part in the novel of Handmaid's Tale is hinted at and constantly present but not shown. It's very it, seldomly shown. Yeah, it's not explicit, and that's let's let's go ahead and talk about that because, um, like for instance, the glaring one of the most glaring examples uh, from the miniseries from these first three episodes so far is the persecution. Yeah. Um, now it's uh, Fred tells us what what it is and what happens, but in the book she's she's she horrified. She yeah, yeah she does not participate. Um, and so seeing it on screen, okay, first of all, it was quite horrific, and I don't know about you guys, but like I mean, I I cried. It was horrifying. Um. You you also don't you, you don't um, get that added um, factor of knowing that this man was um, part uh, was a Mayday operative, right? Right. Um, at least not yet. Maybe that'll come back. At least, but at this point, yeah. I kind of doubt it. Like if it hasn't come up by now, because this they do the participation, which happens towards the very end of the novel. They do it at the end of the first episode. But they call it. They they kind of hint at the fact that it's participation and not salvaging. Like they say it briefly, but they don't really like the salvaging doesn't happen. They don't talk about the rounding up of female dissidents in mm-hmm. the way that they do in in the novel. I think you know. So the. You brought up the kitty, the fact that they that they don't hint at the fact that this man was an operative of Mayday. I kind of think that for the that scene and for that being on screen, as I was watching that, I was really, really terrified that they were going to have him say, "I didn't," because I think that that would send the message that 
that would send a message about false rape accusations that is mm-hmm. kind of counterproductive. Mm-hmm. And so I think that their choice to not include that was perhaps wise because they could have gotten a lot of backlash about like, this is what happens when, you know, like women, you know, are punishing men for, for, for rape. You know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and men are going to be falsely accused and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely would agree with that. Um, it was just uh, vastly different to because of Fred in, in the in the series like viciously and enthusiastically participates. Yeah, yeah. I um, it was I it honestly didn't work for me. I really thought mm-hmm. that they hadn't earned that by the end of episode one, mm-hmm. um, and like really thought that it kind of fell flat. Uh, that whole scene that's disappointing. And they they leave out the. Like, they leave out a lot of the symbolism that I thought was really important in that scene. Like, the bits about, like, the the rope and then being complicit in the, in the persecution of other women. Um, it just felt... Yeah, I think, Sky, you're right. It, it felt unearned in, in some sense. Um, but I do think that they did a good job of preserving some of, the, like, the casual continuous threats of violence for example when they have the handmaids like sitting on the um like next to the wall and there are just bodies hanging in the background let's go by the river today oh yeah that would be nice yeah it would be nice to go by the river and uh look at the bodies hanging by the wall (laughs) yeah um so that is shocking to us but it shows the degree to which this has been normalized in Mm -hmm. gilead so let's talk about we haven't mentioned it yet, but let's let's talk about how um, so far it seems that and in 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 the world of the miniseries we don't yet know um, we we don't yet know anything about the historical notes, and yeah. um, I I I don't know if we will we'll see. Um, so it seems that either the miniseries is. Um, affirming some speculation from the historical notes or for one reason or whatever right with um, names yeah uh, fred tells us my name is june uh. <sighs> and yeah oh, I, I mean boy, let's talk about this let yeah let's talk about this because this is the uh the biggest beef i have with the miniseries me and too it's that... i'm glad that we're in agreement katie <laughs> and I, because into that episode i was like seriously guys like you just you ruined wow. it in the yeah, first episode. Episode one. The end of episode one. Like, if they had saved that for, like, an end of episode nine reveal, I would have been okay with it. Episode one. Really? Yeah. Because the entire, like, a- a Fred purposely does not tell us her name. The uh, whole book is one not her erasure. To, yeah. One, to preserve herself. And two, because as we discussed, this is... This is showing us all of the lives that are erased that we don't, we don't, we don't know about. This is a testament to that. And I honestly think at the end of episode one, her telling us her name means nothing. No. Right? No. It, it would have been way cooler if at the end of that episode she said, you know, my daughter's name is Hannah, my husband's name was Luke, and then she, like, struggled with it and then said, and my name is Fred. Like, that would have been a much more powerful ending to that first episode than her just giving us the name. It's not earned in any way. 
Because the way that, the way that they frame it is that it's an act of defiance or rebellion on her part, right? But but that's not the character. And it doesn't feel like That's not like the it. way that she rebels. And the point of this, and, and I kind of feel like the whole point of The Handmaid's Tale is that, like, is to show that personal defiance means nothing in the grand scope of society systemic and systematic oppression in the view of history like these this woman would be forgotten and that's like that's the powerful end note on this is that like she is not even a footnote in history she has no name she is a slave and to pretend that you can just give her this kind of subjectivity to you know have this like fighting girl power like what's the end of it to the end of this you well know? and like, we see in episode three right she's being questioned about her relationship with of glenn and she like quotes scripture back to aunt lydia who then proceeds to like beat the shit out of her mm-hmm. um and like that's not that was also a moment where that moment didn't bother me as much as when she talks about her name in the at the end of the first episode but it bothered me a little because i was like i don't think a friend would do that like a friend is Two eyes on the prize. Like, yeah. a friend is too invested in her own survival. In self-preservation. To do something that dumb. That's the kind of stuff we would ex- expect from Saki Janine. Or maybe Moira. Moira. But not from a friend who seems way too invested in self-preservation to do something that risky. Right. And I, But I guess this comes back to, like, catering to um, a, a modern television audience and not necessarily an audience that knows and understands the handmaid's tale well and it makes their audience feel better you know because Mm -hmm. they can like they can project this like they can feel good about a fred they don't have to like examine how a fred is like defeated you know Mm -hmm. they they can believe that she can win this out when the whole point of the handmaid's tale is to say no there are real losers in in oppressive patriarchy you know Mm -hmm. yeah um, you know, all this said, like, I really think that these first three episodes did a good job of showing this oppression and violence in a way that makes it be- like, you know, sort of the whole yeah, point of The Handmaid's Tale is to be like, this could happen here now. And it kind of doesn't matter where here or now is. Well, and it, and, it has happened. And right, it is happening. Right. And I think like, I think this... TV show, at least in these first three episodes, does a pretty good job of of communicating that. Like I think that it's they they make it familiar enough and real enough so that it it does that job pretty well. Oh, like when they when when of Glenn has is is basically punished with a kind of medicalized and sanitized FGM. Mm-hmm. That was crazy. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that, like, does highlight, like, I think that kind of addition and modification, it was a really welcome and poignant and pointed way of making Margaret Atwood's point in the novel as a whole. I like Nick. I think they do a good job with Nick. Um... Max Mingello, who I'm not familiar with, uh, plays Nick in this show, and mm-hmm. uh, he's a little too collaborative with her. He's a little too like wink, wink. I'm on your side. I 
I, I think we know that because we've read the novel, but I I wonder if, if we had not read the novel and were watching this show, I think, like, what they're trying to do is, like, half the time have him be, like, collaborative, and half the time you're supposed to suspect that he's the eye in the house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point of Glenn says to a friend, like, there is an eye in your house. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. like... We have no idea who that is. Like, that's not something that happens in the novel, and it, it appears at the end of the novel that there isn't an eye in her house. Like, there's there's not really anyone who that might be. Um, and so we're not, as viewers, I don't think we're, we really know if there is an eye in the house and it's someone that we don't know, or if there isn't and that's just of Glenn saying that or what. Like, I don't know what's going on with that. That's never, like, revealed or anything. But I think the viewer who's new to the work is supposed to suspect that Nick is an eye. What did you guys think of the addition in the second episode on the birthday episode where they have the wife going through like this fake labor I ceremony? That was great. It was it, it yeah, it was so bizarre and fittingly so because yeah. you know, the like the whole the whole the, the ceremony and all that kind of stuff in mm-hmm. in the novel is bizarre. And yeah, it was it was great. It was weird. It was <laughs> like almost comical and ridiculous and if fred like sees it and kind of laughs um i thought that was great and then there was a perfect contrast so the the wives uh doing this fake labor thing and the lighting is very like white and um like kind of cold and then yeah. Yeah. yeah sanitized and you then it cuts to the actual birth um of janine and um warm undertones in yeah. the room like lots of yeah mm-hmm. and and it was also so we talked before about um you know the, the red center doing this like fake brainwashing and creating and the handmaids have this kind of fake um sisterhood that they're mm-hmm. supposed to be to, to to feel which which is yeah entirely false and and not genuine but that moment in uh, uh, of the birth is very much so like a communal and um, kind of like cohesive moment, mm-hmm. um, and I I thought that was done really well. Yeah, it was it was one of the additions like modifications from the book in the series that I thought was really appropriate and really well done and like bravo to the to the producers and and writers for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to talk about the Scrabble scene. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, oh that's and that's another thing that I I forgot to mention, but uh, we're missing another really important thing. We don't have don't don't let the the bastards grind you down. Oh, that, you know that's, I didn't even think about that. That's in the next episode. That's oh. in episode four. That's the oh, title of really? episode. That's the title of episode four. Oh, okay, I hadn't looked. So because I was I was going to be really upset about that. Um, <laughs> uh, because that's her mantra, right? Yeah. For a while, even though it turns out to be uh, deliciously and horrifically like a, a, a setup and just pretty much false. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that is something very important to her. So I'll, I'll be interested to see how that's incorporated. Um, but yeah, the Scrabble scene with the commander. My nitpicky thing about this scene is that at the conclusion of the game there are still seven tiles on 
a Fred's Scrabble counter, which is not what happens at the end of a Scrabble game. They're, they're, all the tiles are on the board at that point, basically. So I was very disappointed with that, especially because these two players are basically like professional championship Scrabble players, right? Their scores are like in the high 300s, which is like, you know, those are highly skilled players playing Scrabble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I was really disappointed that they like sort of messed up the continuity of Scrabble in that yeah. scene. But that was—that's my dumb nitpick. That's not like a, a serious criticism of the show. Perhaps that was a, a just a, a an editing continuity error. We maybe we can give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. Sure, or maybe they when <laughs> you know maybe they were like, no, no, it doesn't look Scrabbly enough unless there's a bunch of tiles showing. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I you know who knows why that happened, but I was like, uh, that's not what happens at the end of Scrabble, guys. The commander yeah. still has his pose at the mantelpiece when she walks in. Yes, I did like that. They did include that. They don't comment on it, but they do have it. Yeah, he's just like awkwardly kind of standing there. But I, I, I wonder to someone who hasn't like read the book if they interpret it the same as yeah. she does. Especially because it's freaking Joseph Fiennes, who's a hot young dude. Like, I right. feel like that reads a lot differently than Mitch with... McConnell at the mantelpiece. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. Like it's 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 less ridiculous because the dude looks like he should be doing that. Right, he looks like he's in a Rolex advertisement. He's yeah. showing mm-hmm. off his his Rolex wrist on on the mantelpiece. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. he, there's a line he says um, about like bending the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and which which I did think was was pretty good. Uh, like, you, you know, she she still doesn't really know what's going on. Like, OK, well, why does he want to play Scrabble with me? And he says, you can look at me in here. We can bend the rules. Um, and that's I think I think that's good because it's uh, it like demonstrates his place of privilege. He does not ask her to kiss him at the end of this uh, encounter. No, but he does touch her. Yes, they like, like weirdly shake. shake hands, but like also in a weird way. Mm-hmm. It seems that in in the miniseries they do maybe a little too much. They're they're a little too insistent on this idea that women are controlling other women, and they don't really show male violence as obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, like you have you have Aunt Lydia, of course, who is like who who that's her role as the trainer of the the handmaids, but all of the men seem to be kind of like sympathetic in some way if they're yeah, you know you know what i mean the the male characters are kind of like you kind of want to like them which they're fairly innocuous yeah I, I think that's i mean i thought that was present in the novel as well and i think that's one of the points that margaret Atwood was trying to make in the handmaid's tale is that like we're tempted especially in the novel like we're we are tempted to be sympathetic to the commander throughout the novel and it's only like sort of in the historical notes that like the lecturer like discusses the possible identities of the commander and it's like oh yeah all these people were human monsters who committed like atrocities yeah. throughout their lives um and so i think like i thought that was in keeping with the novel that like the in in the novel too the male characters do not are not usually shown being violent and mm-hmm. and women are shown being violent like mostly aunt lydia um and you know most of the violence in the handmaid's tale is in the the novel is not seen it's only thought about basically i'll be interested to see what they do with jezebels 
Um, cause that has, you know, has not happened in the first three episodes. So that'll be, I mean, I think that'll be an interesting turning point. Um, as long as they're not like going with the line that Moira is dead, according to, you know. To yeah. So, at, so in this, at the participation, Janine sort of like real, this is like the first time, well, I guess it's like the second time that we're like, oh, Janine is a very different character in this series than she is in the novel because she basically just like brags to all of them that she knows that Moira's dead and she's like, haha, your friend's dead. Like she's like a bully to them. And that's like not really what Janine's character would do in the novel, I feel like. Um, Janine would brag about being pregnant. Yeah, and, exactly. You know. Janine would make it all about her in the novel, but in the series, she's like, oh yeah, Moira, I heard she's dead. Like, sent off to colonies, so she's got to be dead by now. Um, and that feels like, I mean, I, my guess is Moira will return to tell her tale, but like, it's a very, it's a very weird choice that they have uh they have a Fred believe that uh, that Moira is dead. Mm. Um, rather, you know, like she's in the novel. She spends most of the novel not knowing, you know, what's up with Moira. I'll be alone, you know it, baby. So something else that I just thought of. Uh, what did you guys think about the uh, soundtrack? that we get like at the end of each episode we get kind of like a theme song almost yeah i have Um, mixed feelings about the soundtrack what did you think about this katie yeah so episode one was you don't own me episode two was um uh oh don't you forget about me and what was episode three uh it was some like rock song i don't i'm my knowledge of like rock music is oh oh yeah heart of glass it was heart of glass at the end of episode three um so i don't know like i mean clearly like like we had said at at the end of episode one where she like reveals her name oh stupid um it's like they're they're making her to be like a, a much more active protagonist i feel and so they're re- that is clearly reinforced by that song. I am not quite sure how Don't You Forget About Me fits. I thought really. that was really hokey and bad, frankly. Yeah. I, when that when that came out, I was like, what are they doing here? Like, what are they, it, it was as if, and, you know, thankfully this show doesn't do this a lot, but this was one of a few times where they were like, they're just doing that because this is the, like, plot beat or like mood beat that they need right now this doesn't do anything for the story or the show see i think it would be more powerful if they had just like protestant hymns like they ended it with go tell it on the mountain or something oh dude that would be crazy because like that that is much more poignant and you know to the point of the like the story that like the handmaid's tale is not about a fred's individual resistance which we've talked about but like Ugh, I don't know. I feel like they're putting too kind of a spin on this, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean the so the the soundtrack as a whole is or the the you know score as a whole is a sort of like orchestral score in the you know in the sort of current style your Hans Zimmer's etc. Um, like it, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't feel too out of place in an in a you know, action movie. It wouldn't feel too out of place in, you know, a different television show, like a, you know, um, a different, like, prestige drama. Uh, but one thing that I did like, and it was it was good. It, it sort of set the mood. I feel like it 
in some ways is a good replacement for um, uh, a Fred's sort of inner monologue. We don't get as much of that, and I feel mm-hmm. like the music does a good job of like hitting those notes mm-hmm. that the inner monologue hits in the novel. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't too impressed with it, except especially in the third episode, as it keeps going, they do more things where they will weave in like 70s, 80s, 90s like popular songs into this orchestral soundtrack. So there's this scene in episode three where Moira and uh, and June, I guess, uh, are attending this protest and like, you know, the, the protest goes, which is not is it's like referred to, but not acted out in the novel where like, you know, the the people at the protest start getting like shot and like bombs are blowing up and they're like running away and they have that like disco song. I don't remember the name of the song. It was like a disco song um, that they like slow down and sort of like put the vocals over the orchestral soundtrack. And I thought that was cool because it, it especially in these flashback, flashback sections, it really shows like there's the, uh, the familiar of like popular music being sort of like muddied by the disturbing mm-hmm. uh, in this orchestral soundtrack, and like it shows that the the memory of like the, the popular music and of the flashback is like it's a memory, right? It's it's like a um, there's like the distortion being shown. So I had mixed feelings about the soundtrack. Some parts I thought really worked, and some parts uh, don't. You forget about me. I was not into. I mean, let's be honest. All anyone can think when they hear that is the breakfast. It's the club, breakfast so. club, right? Like, what point were they? Were they like, and then they have her like slow mo walking with Nick for no reason, and it's just like, is this the weird breakfast club they're setting up? Is she supposed to be Molly Ringwald? Like, what is going on? You guys noticed that. Margaret Atwood had a cameo in episode one. Yes. Yep. She was an aunt. Yes, in the Red Center. Um, and that was, so that was during, um, yeah, during this, uh, one of the, like, brainwashing exercises in the Red mm-hmm. Center with the, like, who's her fault and shame her. Um, and that was the scene that Margaret Atwood, Atwood was uh, referring to, that she... Uh, said just felt really uncomfortable and real to her yeah um, um she does smack a friend upside the head in that uh-huh. scene which is fun yeah so props to margaret atwood she yep. did a great job i kind of wish she was in it more um yeah I mean, people have asked her about that and she was like oh no like it was really exhausting to do that just for like one day yeah um, yeah which i can understand but uh it would have been kind of awesome if, like, she was a recurring character. She could have been Aunt Elizabeth. Is that the one that was that oh, Moira? I don't know. Moira, like, oh, the one that she—that would be kind of funny if she were if if uh, if Margaret Atwood was the handmaid that like Moira ties up. You in mean the, the aunt that? Or yeah, mm-hmm. right that one. So, you, Sky, you talked about before how you thought that the filming was taking like that they were filming it in Boston but I just looked it up on IMDB it looks like most of the filming happened um, in the Toronto area oh that doesn't surprise me too much Um, Toronto uh, is a popular place to film uh, television and and movies that are set on like east coast cities because it's uh, Toronto uh, offers a lot of like tax credits to Mm -hmm. people filming there it's a very Mm -hmm. easy city to film in so that doesn't surprise me um Less of a commute for uh, Ms. Atwood as well. As well. Yes. Yeah. So. There you go. <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, but I mean, it really, I mean, like, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Boston, but like, it really did feel like Boston when they were, you know, like they, they do a pretty good job of like having a specific sense of place. Sure. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, I don't know Boston well enough to be like, you know what I mean? Like when things, I've lived in New York for like six years now. And so whenever I see things that are set in New York, I can one, usually tell if they were actually filmed in New York. And two, I'll be like, oh, they're cutting between these two shots, but these places are like 20 blocks apart. They can't do that. (laughs) Like, you know, uh, New York's a a good city to be able to do that with. But like, I've been to Boston a couple of times, but I don't know Boston well enough to be like, oh, that bridge obviously isn't in Boston. Duh. (laughs) Well, people are from Toronto probably, you know. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure people from everything. Toronto, yeah, when they when they see movies shot in Toronto, and there are many of them, I'm sure they they do the mm-hmm. same things. Yeah, but but to the average person, the general feel of 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 the location, I yeah. think, is right. Um, what did you think about? Um, so there's the whole scene where she, uh tries to buy like they're they're out running and they stop at a coffee shop and they try to buy the coffee and that's when her card is declined and that's when all of the things start with the firing of the women and everything Mm -hmm. um and then so there's the men with guns and the women are like walking out of the um the building with their typical like box of all of their desk things (laughs) when you get fired from a job um and there's uh, actually a pretty great line like one of them says like why why is the army here and then uh, someone else replies it may have been a Fred I can't remember um, but she says I don't think that's the army um, and then there are also some nice touches of like you see like like Catholic cathedrals being torn down so um, so I think they do a nice job of kind of like setting up the like the religious wars and um, the backstory in general. Yeah, the yeah. backstory of what happened. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was cool. I that se- that sequence when they do the um the flashback. Uh, I thought the like fired at work scene was really good. That scene at the coffee shop was kind of weird to me. Like the barista is just like such a like like an asshole to them apropos of nothing and they don't really like make that there's a lot of ways they could have played that to make that seem more natural but it just felt like really out of nowhere why would he be a sudden convert like that just like you know well like and well i think what's like like either that should be way weirder than it, it is presented as or well they are kind of taken aback they're like what's your problem dude yeah but they're right but like if that's a thing that lots of dudes are doing in this brave new world they should be more familiar with that as well, an op like you oh, know what i mean no they did say they did say like who are you where's the regular person who's right. usually here like you know so obviously he's replacing someone yeah um, so yeah i don't know it was it was an awkward scene but i don't think that they mucked it up that bad yeah, it was. I mean, it was. It fine. It, it it like definitely communicated and moved the story the way that it needed to. I just thought it was like it was a little like awkward. Um, mm-hmm. I did think though that so right after that, um, uh, Fred and Moira are at home and Luke is there. I thought that scene was done really well yeah. because Luke does the the thing of like, oh, you know, I'll take care of you, and they're and they both are. It'll be okay, uh, baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Moira's like, like, fuck you, dude. 
like 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 you're hers to take care of you know yeah. she's yeah it's like dude you're part of the problem like you're part of the problem and that's patronizing um i think that was done really well yeah yep yeah i i, I really liked in in general i really liked the flashback scenes i thought they really did a good mm-hmm. job with those mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Um, the college one. I mean, one thing I was talking to Lauren about this as I was watching it is that, like, Elizabeth Moss kind of looks too haggard to, like, in, especially in the early flashback scenes when they're in college. It's like, okay, this is clearly, like, a mid 30 something woman who's seen some shit. Like, they, like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, this, this person is not a college student. But, uh, right, but, you know, I don't that's... believe you that you're, like, going to go finish your paper early. Like, right. I mean... Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's how that. That works like I, you know, Elizabeth Moss is great in this role. This is not a dig on her at all. But it, yeah, Maybe. that was one of the things that like I was like, mm, I don't know how young they can make you look. They were in grad school instead. Let's take it there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Makes, Why not? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, uh, all in all, I think this is a really good adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. Um. It seems like probably they'll go in some really different directions with it uh, mm-hmm. over the course mm-hmm. of the next uh, seven episodes. But mm-hmm. from what I've seen, like, I'm reasonably confident that they'll do an okay job with it. Yeah, I think, uh, and the ones that we've pointed out, there are some glaring um, flaws with it. But, but yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think it's, I think if nothing else, um, uh, I could see somebody watching this and then reaching for the book. Yeah. I mean, it's already having, like, although The Handmaid's Tale was already a bestseller after the the election in November, it's just picking up steam. They did a, they did a kind of public art installation on the High Line where they, um, they gave out a bunch of free copies of The Handmaid's Tale and had them just there for anyone to take. Um, so they're obviously promoting the book along with the miniseries and they've come out with a you know of of an edition of the book that has the miniseries um visuals on the cover so um i'm hopeful that more people will read margaret atwood yeah and margaret atwood pointed out and i was reading an interview that margaret atwood gave um we don't like the bbc i don't remember where i was reading this but um or maybe this canadian so, I don't know, something. I was reading a Margaret Atwood interview this morning, and she, like, pointed out that women are getting together, dressing up as handmaids, and going to, like, state legislature, yeah. like, hearings and things like which, that, uh, which is pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So I, I really think that this is becoming... And, you know, they announced the uh, adaptation of this miniseries about a year ago, but it, it's my guess, like Lauren mentioned, that they're really promoting and advertising this heavily. My guess is that, you know, political events in the past six months or so, uh, or the, you know, the past year since they've announced it, you know, this has become part of the m- cultural moment that we're in, and hopefully it will remain so. So, uh, Katie, why don't you tell us a little bit about our next novel? All right. So our next book that we will be uh, beginning is The Razor's Edge by W. Somerset Maugham. And uh, this is a book that it's it was published in 1944. Um, and basically it's a post-World War One story of like 
disillusionment and post-war traumatization. Um, that's about as specific as I want to get. Uh, but it's um, I, I I read this book in high school, and uh, I think I think I think it's it's relevant, much like everything else that we've read. I think it's relevant today. Um, so we'll be starting that next week. Woo! Uh, there is a film adaptation from the 80s starring Bill Murray. Can we, yes, can we watch that? I had actually intended on us doing that. <laughs> Yay! So yes, absolutely we will. I like that we're that we get to be amateur film and television critics and along with book club nerds. It's kind of fun. I can't wait to make fun of Bill Murray. Bill Murray, <laughs> you're going down. Everyone loves Bill Murray. Uh, I mean, Bill Murray is supposed to be like a super jerk in real life, um, but also kind of like a crazy guy, right? Like, I don't know if you guys have heard those stories about him, like just going up to people in public and going, "I'm Bill Murray, and no one will ever believe you." Um, so he seems like a fun guy, but I've also heard that he's kind of a jerk. Um, mm. I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about Bill Murray's uh, acting. I'll probably cut this out. I want to I want to get into big arguments with people about over, over Bill, Bill Murray. Murray. I also don't want to hurt Mr. Murray's feelings if he happens to listen to this podcast. Like, <laughs> I know Bill Murray only by reputation and his work in films, and I honestly don't want to uh, offend Mr. Murray you if he happens be, to be a, a reader. You don't want to be doxxed as a Bill Murray critic? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think Bill Murray has plenty of critics. I, you know, like, yeah. uh, I'm not too worried about that. But uh, anyway, um, so The Razor's Edge. Uh, this is a novel uh, that um, I have not read. I'm excited to read it. Um, it's often compared to the works of uh, Mom's contemporary Herman Hesse, uh, which I have read, and I really like Herman Hesse's novels. So if uh, this is comparable, I am on board. Yeah, this will be my first time reading The Razor's Edge as well, and I honestly don't know much about it, so um, it'll be, uh, I think it'll be fun. All right. So uh, I'll drop in what chapters we're reading so uh, our readers can get the jump on reading with us, and we'll start that next week. We're reading part one of The Razor's Edge next week. You should read part one, too. Then we can talk about it together. That's part one of The Razor's Edge. Fantastic. Um, do we have any other recommendations for the week? Uh, I don't. I think I'm kind of coming up empty, too. I recommend Lauren's breakfast burritos. If Lauren ever rec- ever offers you to make a breakfast burrito, you should take her up on it. <laughs> Duly um, noted. And that's the end of our show. Um, so join us next week. No, 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 that's week. it. That was it. I... I... <laughs> <laughs> Too late, Katie. Nope, that's the end of our show. (laughs) Alright, sorry, Katie. Go go ahead. I'll let you wrap things up the real way. So thanks for joining us for this episode of Interlibrary Loan. As always, I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. And that's the end of our show. (laughs) Thanks, Sky. Uh, okay, sorry. I probably need to, like, drink some water or something. Enter, enter, enter library loan. Please rate us high, high, high on iTunes. Find us online at illbook.club. On Twitter, we are at illbookcast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful, awesome Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay, okay, okay. Back to robot sleep until next week.